It's midnight, the podcasting hour. Barbara and Lee take their honeymoon in the Swiss Alps. Though Barbara had wanted to vacation in the Riviera, her new husband convinced her that time on the ski slopes would be more fun. They arrive at the chalet and Lee begins to unpack their bags. Barbara gazes out the window at the fresh falling snow, when suddenly the vision of beauty becomes that of a nightmare. Barbara screams and tells Lee that she saw Death's face in the snow. Of course, he sees nothing and assumes she's just exhausted from the wedding and their travels, but comforts her and takes her to bed. The next morning, Barbara wakes to find her man all dressed and about to sneak out with his skis. Still unsettled by her vision from the night before, she begs him to be careful. After he leaves, Barbara goes to wash her face. She fills a basin with water and gasps as once more she sees the vision of death, this time in the rippling pool. She screams and runs from her room, runs out into the crowded lobby to find her husband. Lee, alarmed at the sight of his frantic wife running out into the lobby and crying for him, takes her in his arms but he still does not believe she saw what she thinks she saw. Stubbornly, Lee refuses to entertain any thoughts or premonitions of doom and heads out to ski. As he rides up the lift, Barbara, still in the chalet, sees the ominous face of death in the clouds. Terrified, she forces herself to act, She dresses quickly and races out to the slopes to catch and possibly save her husband. She catches him just as he's about to board the lift again. Lee embraces his wife and comforts her yet again, telling her she'll have no reason to fear after he gives her a proper ski lesson. She acquiesces to him and he helps her onto the lift chair, telling her he'll meet her at the top. As the chair bears her aloft, Barbara feels a weight lift off her chest. Her hair blows in the wind. The world from up high looks peaceful and serene. Then, as another lift chair passes by on the downward track, a sudden gust of wind pulls her scarf loose. The free end wraps around the downward lift chair. Barbara scrambles to get the scarf off around her neck but everything happens too quickly. Before she can scream, she is yanked violently out of her chair, but she doesn't fall to her death. The scarf holds at both ends, one side wrapped around the chair, the other around her neck. When Lee finally meets his bride at the base of the slope, she is still hanging from the lift chair, strangled, her face now the very image of death. Sp-
Spectre in the Snow is written by Leo Dorfman with art by John Kalman. It originally appeared in Ghosts, issue 20, cover dated October 1971. Happy Halloween, dreadful listeners! We've got a real treat for you this time. Former guest Doug Zavisha is back to help Ryan Daly chronicle the first half of Dead Man's acclaimed miniseries. I don't generally offer a lot of praise to people, but that Jose Luis Garcia Lopez who draws this comic, woo, he's pretty good. So, enjoy this short promotional break, or make whatever last-minute adjustments you need to your costume, because we will be right back. They burned it down. If you rebuild it, they will come in. You didn't hear them? Beg your pardon? The voice? Pete? If you rebuild it, they will come. They blew it up. If you rebuild it, they will come in. They demolished it. If you rebuild it, they will come. But horror has a permanent address. Welcome to my home. The house of Frankenstein lives! You see, uh... We began a project a few years ago, but unfortunately it was it was interrupted. And we're most anxious to take it up again. In September and October, the Fire and Water Podcast Network presents a Supermates tradition, covering four classic horror films and four related comic book adventures. I must find more victims before my work is done. You need look no further, Vampirus. We'll take the bat jet to the Hall of Justice and transform the other super friends. <laughs> Featuring an all-star cast. James Spader. What are you, crazy? Jack Nicholson. No, just marking my territory. Anthony Hopkins. She lives beyond the grace of God, a wanderer in the outer darkness. Lon Chaney Jr. One becomes accustomed to the darkness here. Michelle Pfeiffer. You're afraid that when it gets dark, you'll attack me. Vincent Price. Let's, uh... See what the rest of this mausoleum looks like. Gary Oldman. Enters freely of your own will and leave some of the happiness you bring. Winona Ryder. I almost feel pity for anything so hunted as this count. Peter Cushing. I am a doctor of medicine, law, and physics. To the best of my knowledge, doctorates are not awarded for witchcraft. But if ever they are, no doubt I shall qualify for one. And Keanu Reeves. Doctor! This Halloween, visit our field of screens at the scenic House of Frankenstein where terror is only a listen away. (laughs) Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Ryan Daly, and I am absolutely thrilled to welcome my guest back for the first time since... 2016, back when I promised that he would be on every five episodes. (laughs) Oh, that was such an awful lie. He is a writer for Comicosity, and he also blogs about the Doom Patrol, which is an actual TV show. Now, that's getting a ton of critical and fan praise, if you can believe it. But for the purposes of this podcast, he is a huge fan of DC's spectral superhero, Deadman. Please welcome back after way, way too long, Mr. Doug Zavisha. How are you, Doug? What have you been up to? 
Hey, Ryan. Thanks for having me. I'm doing well. Um, as for what I've been up to, it's one of two things. So we'll maybe just throw out a multiple choice there. Maybe it's more than two. I've been in Nanda Parbat with my friend uh, Boston Bren. Uh, just got out on parole or, you know, we've been a little busy with other things. So, or D, all of the above. There you go. There you go. I have, we do need to talk about some Ted man, but I, I kind of just wanted to like take him on. Like I haven't seen the show, but doom patrol. I mean, I feel like between Paul Hicks and Mike Garvey, the waiting for doom guys, like, and you, you're probably like the third one. I feel like you guys are completely responsible for that. Um, I, I think it's more on Mike and Paul than me personally, but I'll take a little bit of the credit. Sure. <laughs> you know, if they want to fly us out to set, I'm sure Mike and Paul would agree to that. H- have you had a chance to watch it? I haven't seen the show. No, I don't have the DC right. universe. I have, although I did, I mean, this might date, you know, when we're recording this, cause I don't know when this episode will come out, but as of just now, I just saw the, uh, the clip of Larry Trainer, the negative man, basically doing a musical number of seeing a Kelly Clarkson song in a, a sort of trans burlesque show type of thing, um, sort of a glorious sort of like coming out party or whatever thing. Um, and it's really kind of like just an amazing little little scene and everything. And I think it's getting a lot of traction and a lot of love for that for that moment in the show. Now, I don't know what the context is because I haven't been following it. So I don't know exactly what their take on Negative Man is, but uh, it definitely looks very intriguing. And my interest, just based on that alone, has been severely piqued. So I might have to look into it. It is a fun show. And uh, just a little bit of context there. It's Danny the Street that factors in. A little bit of spoiler, a little bit of context. Uh, But every time you think that the show couldn't get more weird or couldn't be more true or couldn't find a more creative way to homage the source material, it does. Huh. Yeah. And and it just – every episode seems to be one step higher or one step over or just – it is – it's a spectacle. Mm. Um, It's not necessarily the highest budget and sure – we can certainly find things to nitpick on it, but just the sheer joy of having a Doom Patrol show overweighs everything else that I could be wrong with it. Even now, I'm thinking back when we talked about the secret origin of the Doom Patrol on the Secret Origins podcast way back. We even, you and I, did like a fan casting of who we would like to see uh, on the show. Um, I know I didn't pick Timothy Dalton for the chief, but that's pretty good. I like that. Yeah, that that is a solid pick. Yeah, but I, I think because I, I went through like a phase where I did fan casting for almost the entire DC universe. Um, and we're going back now like five or six years but I think even at that time, Matt Bomer or Matthew Bomer, who I think is Larry Trainer in the show, I think I picked him as like my Nightwing or something like that. My Dick Grayson, my older older version of Dick Grayson at that time. So that's kind of funny. Yeah, um, but I don't think anyone picked April Bowlby as <laughs> Elastigirl, Woman, whatever moniker they're giving her, Rita Farr. Yeah, yeah, really. And that casting is just pure brilliance right there. Very cool, very cool. All right, well, uh, back to the dead man that we are here to talk about, Boston Brand. Way back on episode three of the show, we covered his first appearance, his origin. He is an aerialist circus performer who is murdered during one of his uh, netless trapeze acts, falls to his death, but he is given not a new life because he's still very much dead, but the uh, sword of goddess Ramakushna uh, appears to him and gives him a chance to come back and avenge his death and eventually sort of right the wrongs and bring cosmic justice to the world uh, as the superhero Deadman. And essentially what he is is he is a ghost. 
but he can possess the bodies of people to act as sort of an agent. And when he does that, he can command their physical limit, what they say, how they act, how they behave. So if he caught a robber, he could possess that robber and walk that guy right to the police station and confess. Um, yep. Or he could get even more creative with that. But um, just sort of, uh, we, so we don't have to rehash a lot about him, but why do you like Deadman so much? Like, why is this one of like the signature characters that you always wanted to talk about? Like, before I had any notion that he was co-created by Arnold Drake, it was the stunning visual of Deadman that got me. And um, I mentioned this on when we talked about Deadman previously on, on your Secret Origins podcast and then also on the first episode of the Deadman version of this, this podcast. I found Deadman right around the time that the Baxter reprint series, which was reprinting Strange Adventures, or Dead Man's, uh, mostly Dead Man's Tales and Strange Adventures, when that was hitting the, the local comic shelves. That's when I found a local comic shop. And that first issue of Dead Man standing over Dead Man, shouting at the reader, drawn by Neil Adams, was just such an impactful visual that I had to buy it. I had no idea what this was all about. And the story inside was certainly a strange turn from what I expected from the cover. But from there, Deadman just, he has that, that balance of humor and uh, self-effacing, not really downtroddenism, but he, he doesn't take himself too seriously. He doesn't take the world around himself too seriously, but he's trying to do things the right way or for the right reason at the very least. And quite frequently, circumstances conspire against him, and he can't. And it, it, even though he's dead, man, he's kind of an everyman, and he's got a lot of uh, a lot of Ben Grimm, a lot of Cliff Steele in him. Yeah, he does. And those type of characters are what really th- those characters just really click with me. And Dead Man's no exception. I think part of it, like from like the inception, like the broken nose profile, just kind of lends him that sort of like a little bit of a, the street cred right there. He has that attitude, and I really like that. I, I, you're absolutely right. His his visual is great. One of the most iconic and best-looking costume designs. So simple, but just great costume designs in all of comics. Love that. But I also, I mean, I always like characters who have a unique kind of power, but also some kind of built-in weakness. Yes. Um, and his his power is also very much his liability. And I go back, like, some of my favorite, you know, when I was growing up, I loved the X-Men characters and I loved the mutants. But, and a lot of times my favorites were characters who had a power, but also something kind of a limitation of that. Rogue has an amazing power that she can take out your, so you, she can take your power, she can absorb your memory, she can do all these things. But the cost is she can't control that if she touches you. It's it's uh, like this violation, and she could kill you. Something as simple as that. And I like with Dead Man this type of power, where yeah, he can fly, he can move above. He has all these ghostly powers that seem really cool, like fly through walls, go as high or as low as he wants. You know, travel into your body and control you, and do things like that. That seems fun and awesome, but he he isn't alive. Like he's he's he can't be seen. He has no agency of his own. He can only act using other people as vessels or whatever like that. He can't control that. So that is that built-in limitation and that weakness for him. Right. And, I mean, right. because and- because of that, I like when they sort of reference that even amongst the superhero community of the DC universe, a lot of people don't know who he is. They, they, they have no idea that there's actually this guy around there in their community. Right, and and it also helps that he's been drawn by some really amazing artists. Oh yeah, yeah, I mean, and we're going to talk about one of them today. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, speaking of that, I mean, let's get into what we're here to talk about. So, your, your wonderful return to this podcast and everything was made possible by our good friend, mutual friend, Mr. Martin Gray, Sir Martin Gray, Lord Martin Gray, um, from the blog Too Dangerous for a Girl. Because every once in a while, he'll tweet something or send me a nudge on Twitter just saying, hey, you know what time it is? And I'm like, oh, it's Miller time. It's time to get ill. What are you talking about? He's like, no, no, no. It's almost midnight. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I have a podcast I have to do. So so I thought, okay, I haven't talked to Doug again. And I kind of mentioned this on a, on a recent episode. Next time I do, i got to bring Doug back. So I said, Doug, any dead man story you want to talk about, what do you feel like covering? Uh, and you came back with one that I had not read, but it had certainly been on my radar because of its prominence and the creative team involved. Uh, so we are going to be looking at the four-part Dead Man miniseries that came out in 1986. Technically started in 1985, <laughs> if you go by the on-sale date for the first issue. Just going through the uh, the credits for this one, all four issues are written by Andrew Helfer, Drawn by Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. Praise, Praise be his name. <laughs> Lettered by John Costanza and colored by Tom Zuko. Uh, the first three issues are edited by Janice Rice, and then the third issue is co edited by Richard Bruning, and Richard Bruning does the editing of all his own on issue four. Do you have any idea why the editing change came in the middle of the series? I don't, and I was uh, I was digging into that a little bit, and it looks like Janice Rice was busy with some other DC titles. Uh, okay. One of the other titles she was editing at the time was Booster Gold. Okay. And another one was, um, shout out to our boy Shag, Fury of Firestorm. Huh. Okay. But she didn't have a whole lot of credits beyond uh, maybe a year hmm. after Dead Man. So I, I think maybe she was just done, moved on. Yeah, yeah, maybe. Okay. Uh, the first three covers are all done by Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. Praise be his Praise name. Praise be his name. Uh, and then the fourth issue is actually penciled by John Byrne with inks by Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. Praise be his name. Praise be his name. <laughs> so, um, and I'm just going to say, you know, because we're going to say his name so often, let's, uh, if you want to continue to say praise be his name every time we say his name, <laughs> that's on you. I am probably not going to say it again just because let's, we, we, we understand who we're talking about at this point. I have a compromise here. Okay. Um, I would like to offer up Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, praise be his name, to the 171th power, 71st power, 71th, to the 171st power. And the reason for that is this first issue has 171 panels in it. Whew, okay, so we're, we're going to talk about the art a lot, but that is impressive. Oh, and it only gets better. Oh, gosh, now I kind of... I'm kind of thinking like a what would what an average George Perez issue would would clock at. I, I don't know, but I, reading through this and and trying to keep on top of that and you know get into the detail of the panels and that's just it is we could spend an entire hour talking about any one panel, let alone any one page, let alone twenty two right. pages, right. let alone four issues, right? And it's so um, like. I mean, I'm, we're, we're kind of getting into this but even before we talk about the issue, so I do want to get into the first issue soon, but I do kind of want to want to mention, and maybe you can speak to like the, the choice of getting a guy like that for this series, because when I think of <laughs> JLGL to the 171st, when I think of that guy, like, I mean, you just think of 
Superman, but you think of all the merchandise, you think of all the licensing, you think of the t-shirts, right. everything, like the stock imagery, the, the the style guides, everything like that. But you think of the big heroes, the Justice League, the Teen Titans, everybody like that. I mean, I, I don't know if like timeliness or deadlines are ever like a factor with how fast he could have worked at this point in time, but like the fact that he could have done anything and does this four-issue Dead Man series... Do you know why, like, he got involved in this? I don't, um, but what, I, what I've what i discovered is some of the work that surrounds it. Prior to this, he was, he had done some work on uh, DC Comics Presents, which is where he had worked on Dead Man. Mm-hmm. Um, not exactly prior to it, but before all this started, and then after it, he, he moved on to uh, Cinder and Ash. But okay, on yeah. the way, he did a pit stop into the... Uh, the Heroes for Hope special that DC had produced. Okay. So I wonder if he just he was looking for something unconventional. I mean, certainly with something like Sin if he was just trying to, like, he can draw superheroes in his sleep, he was just trying to go for something different. Right. And, and this is one of those superheroes that uh, is still a superhero or still walks in the superhero world, but you can have a lot of fun and variance with. Right, right. Um, and we will certainly see that from this story. But, uh, okay, let's get into it then, if you're ready for Dead Man Issue 1. Dead Man Issue 1 has a cover date of March 1986, but the actual on-sale date was December 26, 1985, according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics. The story is called Return to Forever. Picking up after the Brave and the Bold 86, the dead man known as Boston Brand, along with his brother Cleveland and the Dark Knight detective himself, are in the secret city of Nanda Parbat, hidden in the Hindu Kush mountains of the Himalayas. They recently were together to save the city from the sensei and his society of assassins. Boston is recovering from his poisoning and eager to get out of Nanda Parbat, even though he's alive as long as he's within the city and will go back to being a ghost once he leaves. Boston demands an audience with the goddess Ramakrishna, who does not want him to leave Nanda Parbat so soon. Boston says he's going back to the world to tie up loose ends and do a little bit of living before he fights for her cause. Rama watches him leave with one final warning that bad things await him if he ignores her. Boston, now a ghost again, and Cleveland Brand return stateside to the current site of the Hills Circus, just in time to see burglars robbing the payroll office. Boston uses his dead man skills to help his brother stop the burglars. That night, Boston takes possession of Cleveland's body and uses it to write his own life and death story, recapping the high points of dead man stories from Strange Adventures. Boston ends his tale asking to use Cleveland's body for one week so that he can experience the thrills and joys of being alive. During this week, Boston reconnects with old friends and lovers like Tiny, the circus strongman, and his girlfriend Lorna. He pays a visit to his own burial site where Vashnu, the circus mystic and disciple of Ramakrishna, repeats the warning that if he doesn't return to Nanda Parbat, some bad stuff is going to happen. He spends the rest of the week whipping Cleveland's body into aerialist shape because he wants to perform one final death-defying trapeze act. On the night of the show, Boston in Cleveland's body does his famous dead man routine, only to have history repeat itself again. A shot rings out and a bullet tears through Cleveland's sternum. 
Boston and Cleveland find themselves in a form of spiritual limbo where Cleveland is rightfully pissed that Boston went and got him killed. As Cleveland's spirit is pulled toward a light, Boston yanks him back, saying Cleveland should get a second chance to act as Rama's agent while he goes on to the next plane of existence. Rama warns Boston that the cosmic judgment would find Cleveland's soul pure and allow him to pass on, but Boston's soul is tainted and would be judged most harshly. Boston calls her bluff and rushes into the light. In the small graveyard where Boston Brand was buried, his reanimated, months-dead corpse claws its way back to the surface as the vision of a nightmare. And that is where issue one ends. First, before we even get into the story, uh, the cover shows Dead Man in a very striking pose, kind of in the center. It's like a full body shot with him angrily sort of screaming towards the heavens. And then in the background, we see kind of a, a kaleidoscopic, like varying blue and pink rays sort of shots with Ramakrishna's face and Sensei's face. The sort of evil and good juxtaposition all around him. What do you think of the cover? I treat this, or I, I, I'm viewing the cover as a uh, pink and powder blue, like a gender reveal wheel of fortune. <laughs> um, as for Dead Man's pose, that's one of his two signature poses. He's either coming <laughs> yeah. right at you flying, or he's screaming at the skies. And so we'll you may that. see some angle of him in either of those, but those are the, the two big poses for Dead Man. Yeah, and we'll see the other one in the next issue cover. <laughs> Yeah, but I mean, otherwise, it's a solid cover. Uh, Dead Man could have maybe been a little larger or stronger on the cover. Because, mm-hmm. honestly, my eye first goes to the, the sensei mm-hmm. right over his left shoulder. Yeah, uh, and in I... In the blue stripe. Right, and I don't know if it's... The coloring, the like the, the changing of like the sensei and Ramakrishna, I like what they're doing with that, the juxtaposition of them, although... You don't really get a full measure of the sensei's importance in the story and the whole symbolic nature of this good and evil balance that it's going. I think maybe this would have been better off as a later cover, like issue three or four. Yeah. But I, maybe it's the coloring or something like that. I like what they're going for, but I think it kind of washes out and it sort of just becomes almost a little bit too monotone with the pink over his red costume and stuff like that. And It's yeah. a good image. I'm not sure that it's great. But... A good Jose Luis Garcia Lopez image is better than a lot of other people's great images. That is absolutely true. <laughs> that is absolutely true. So. Uh, okay, so getting into the story, what did you think? Uh, it, it, it had been a while since I've read the story, but that first page just brought me right back in where you got Batman throwing open the doors to Boston's recovery room, just mad as all hell about Boston, you know, getting up and in and trying to find his way out of Nanda Parvat. And then Boston gets in Batman's face <laughs> and Batman acquiesces. Yeah. Not you know, this might be the last time that ever happened, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, I mean, well, this would be more of a one-punch Batman <laughs> in a year or two. But. Exactly. Especially uh, with Andy Helfer involved, right? Yeah, yeah, really. Speaking of Helfer, I mean, you mentioned the art and how many panels there are. There are a ton of panels, and even though like eight pages two and three are a double page splash, 
There's a lot of panels. There's a lot of art in this. There's a lot of text, too. There are a ton of word balloons and captions and everything like this. This could be a dense read, but I thought it went by very quickly. Like, from what it looks like, this looks like it would have taken a long time, and I'm a pretty slow reader on average. But I found this entire series to be a pretty quick read, and I, I think that's impressive. Like, I haven't read a whole lot of Andrew Helfer scripts like these and some of his Shadow series, like uh, the first couple issues of that. But I just found this to be a very strong read, like very easy dialogue to just kind of, the series flowed, and I, I was impressed with the writing in this too. Not as much as the art, but it pretty, pretty strong. Yeah, it has a very approachable sense about it. Yeah. And part of that is the art, you know, kind of giving you the come hither look, and then the, <laughs> the rest of it is the story itself, because Dead Man's a character who does one thing that, you know, if comics are the ultimate fan service or the ultimate pipe dream, right. then to have someone stand up to Batman, get in his face, and have Batman relent, that's something that's going to latch readers in. Mm-hmm. Um, whether or not you know Dead Man before. But then it keeps going. And, and Dead Man builds this persona that he's going to try and do things his way and doesn't really give a rip what anyone else wants of him, whether it's right or not. He's earned, or at least he gives the sense that he's earned the right to be happy once more. Right. And that's where the, the story really goes. And to your point about the dense read and combining that with the, the sheer number of panels, one thing that I, I want to make sure that your listeners get is this is before computers. <laughs> this is 1985. There is no computer coloring, no computer lettering. There may be, you know, some tricks of the trade that Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, praise be his name, is using in order to get some of these things done. But honestly, he's just putting pencil to paper and, and plowing at it. And likewise with the letterer and, and the uh, the colorist, you know, yeah. they're just straight on going to town on, on these pages. I would love to see one of these original pieces of art. Oh, sure. You know, yeah. Just to see the sheer amount of, of pencil that's on there. And okay. on top of it, Jose Luis Garcia Lopez is inking, you know, so I don't know how much he's blue lining and then inking over top or if he's going, you know, through the whole process of everything, which... Having met the man and having seen his work, I wouldn't be at all surprised if he's going whole hog on the process. Right, right. Um, and, and not really hitting shortcuts. And, and with it being a planned miniseries, like I don't know what lead time they gave him, so I don't know exactly how long he spent working on this, but uh, the series didn't miss its deadlines. I mean, the four issues came out four months apart. So that's, yeah, again, that's really impressive. But yeah, like, I, like as you were saying, getting into like we establishing right off the bat that Boston Brand is a kind of caustic character who's willing to get in Batman's face and make him back down and everything like that. He has this arrogance, he has this hubris that he believes is earned. He thinks he's like earned the right to this that he's worked for this, um, and that comes back to bite him in the butt at the very end of this. It gets his brother killed, and this is a, a big part of the character is his own. His own arrogance, uh, it is a repeat of his origin, in a sense. It's this this history repeating, because that's the same type of thing happened. He's a hard character to like, but he's such a dynamic and kind of uh, rascally type of character um, that you do want to follow him. Yeah, and, and that's just it. He's, he's a hard character to like, but he's not an all-out dick. You know, he's not somebody that you just don't want anything to do with. He's he, He's got enough of a silver lining about him right? that you find a hook 
And I think everybody can find a little different something about Dead Man that maybe interests them, whether it's the supernatural angle or the, the circus angle or the just the the cojones on him. You know, that, that gives a reader their chance to, to imagine themselves in his boots type of thing. Right. There's enough here where it goes back to that, being that everyman. Mm-hmm. There are definitely some pages of art that I want to spend a lot of time looking at, but um, just kind of going through a few things. When Cleveland agreed to let Boston use his body for a week, do you think he really <laughs> thought that out? Like, all the implications? Because one, no, one of the first things that Boston does is that night he goes to Lorna's uh, camp or yep. trailer or something like that. It's like, do you think he realized his brother would be using his body for sex? And, no, and then, and I of don't course, think so. Because that's what you do when you're when you have to scrutinize these things for a podcast. Your your brain takes that in all sorts of directions. I was like, what if Cleveland and Boston were of different sexual persuasions? I was like, <laughs> what if one of them was gay and the other one was straight, and, and they were in this situation? I was like, would Cleveland come back and be like, what did you do to my body? <laughs> well, beyond that, you've got a brother, right? I do. I, I've got a brother. I can't imagine my brother saying, you know what? Yeah, go ahead. As close as we are or aren't, I, I just don't see that happen. I I think me or my brother, one of us would end up with a lot of really embarrassing tattoos at the end of that week. <laughs> like, oh, yeah, <laughs> some, some, some awful, expensive things that would happen. So, <laughs> Tattoos and a hangover that lasts a week, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, all right. Page two and three. The double-page splash of Nanda Parbat, the secret city. What, I, I, I mean, I, I kind of, when I got to the series, I, I was sort of, I, I kind of forgot because I'd had more, I'd probably read about Nanda Parbat more from, like, 52 and, and like, the like the return of Rachel Ghoul stories from, like, Batman and Detective in recent years than I had from Dead Man. So, like, can you sort of tell us, like, what is, like, the state of Nanda Parbat at this point for Dead Man? At this point, uh, Nanda Parbat is a haven. Mm-hmm. Um, and as we'll find out later in the story, it's a haven for people who have walked the path of evil. Um, through whatever circumstances they've found themselves at Nanda Parbat, either directly or indirectly, at the mercy of Ramakrishna. Mm-hmm. And they they essentially get a, a reset button pressed for their lives. Uh, and that reset button, that chance to start over again, makes virtually everybody who comes to Nanda Parbat uh, want to stay and want to continue to contribute to what the, the community is all about. Mm-hmm. And it, from that, that two-page spread that you, you're calling us to, there's a whole lot going on there. I mean, it's all about just kind of chilling and taking it easy with your hookah over to the far right <laughs> or, you know, taking care of the laundry, the lady right next to the, the hookah guy. There's some commerce going on. It's just kind of a – it's not quite a paradise as most people might think. it. It's not, you know, endless mojitos and, and sunny skies, but it's a place where no one's threatened. There's right. no evil. There's no crime. There's no bloodshed. Mm-hmm. And right now, that's that's kind of the life. Right. And, it's Yeah, I think you're right. It's not, it's not paradise. It's not utopia, but it's a place where the wicked – can sort of find a spiritual peace and contentment. Right. Yeah. And yeah, and that becomes uh, significant later in the series. So cool. Okay. What some of the other pages of like art that I wanted to call to? And, and if you, if there's some that you want to show, 
Um, but I think Boston, or when Cleveland kind of wakes up and he's got the note written by Boston the night before, when Boston yes. kind of takes him through his history, and that sort of montage collage page, uh, glorious art. When you know we have it like first like sort of superimposed over just like the profile of Boston, the dead man head in the background and profile. But we see him on the the board up at the top. We see him swinging from the pole. We see him shot and falling. We see his ghost rising up as like the crowd. We see him shouting at the tree, which is before yeah. Ramakrishna took the took the form of like a beautiful goddess. At first, Ramakrishna was just a tree. Gosh, yeah, that's such a beautiful page. You you get a supporting cast. Mm-hmm. You get the the setting of the circus. You get some colors that I would never have associated with Dead Man, let alone put them together in this this manner with the pale yellows and the, the bluish greens and the pinks. They must have really had a deal on magenta ink and pink <laughs> uh, going on with this series, as we'll find out as we go along. But it's it is truly beautiful. And this was this was the part where as I was reading along, it hit me in the face and I, I had to stop and make note that I wanted to point out that this is all done by hand. So every little piece of lettering. So, you know, it, even if you can't draw, you can at least appreciate how much writing is on this page sure, because we've yeah. all written at some point, you know, whether you had to do it for school and you had to physically actually write or you're doing a list or, you know, you're one of old fogey like me where you've written letters in the past. You know, this type of thing is something that, that everyone can relate to the amount of man hour that goes into this page right right and and that's a good one and any page where he's interacting with rama throughout this book and even the series you get into some really almost trippy art yeah you do yeah later on uh when he's doing the training we just see you know him doing all the flips and everything on the top and the bottom it's sort of like the the page is broken up into thirds and the top and bottom are him doing the practicing flipping kind of getting cleveland's body in shape yeah, and on that page, Jose Luis Garcia Lopez draws 18 different dead man images. And yes, yeah, some of them could be lifted, but even so, like the first three where he's going into the handstand and springing out of it, you could use tracing paper and pull those up and then drop it into the next panel or even a stat camera. Uh-huh. But then after that fourth image from the top panel to the bottom one, there's a difference in yeah. what's going on there. So that's... Yeah, That's because, completely well, because, new art. Yeah, you have to follow like the the path of his body because in the first one he doesn't stick the landing; he lands on his ass. And he has yeah. to get up. And he's like, "Damn it!" And then the bottom one, he does stick the landing. So his body has to, by necessity, be in different positions at different points in time and space for that in order for that to work. So that's. I don't know if that was scripted exactly or if that was JLGL171, you know, just knowing exactly <laughs> like having that command of the body position. But it's oh, so good. Yeah. It's amazing, and he does that more than once, where you get the multi-image. Um, frequently, this is attributed to a Frank Millerism, but I'm sure it existed long before him. And I would I would argue very strongly that Jose Luis Garcia Lopez does it better than Miller did, yeah, maybe. where you see the multiple images going through the process. All right. uh, a few pages later, when he is after he has been shot... Um, right after when he's doing the act and the bullet rips through him, the next page when you turn it, you have this the the composition of this page. It ends up being thirteen yes. panels with 
a pan like the the top left corner box or whatever sort of descending in size and going closer to the middle so you almost have this like it, it basically forms an x shape like of of panels of yeah. you know three from each side going up and down like slanted with this sort of like starburst type of panel like right in the middle with the scream of no as Boston in Cleveland's body are like falling and then at the bottom you see the reaction you almost see like his POV as he's looking up as Tiny and Lorna are coming to him and they're screaming and his body is sort of falling into this limbo and the scream of not again at the bottom with two different tails one going to Lorna and one going to Deadman himself oh god it's such a oh man I'm yeah. just oh it's blown away but yeah 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 and there's even Kirby Crackle jammed in here. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like every trick in the book and some Kirby Crackle. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's the way, yeah, the, the bottom, like, as he's going to limbo, that's what it looks like, yeah. Um, and then, yeah, there's a more trippy imagery towards the back as as he's facing off with Rama. Um, lots of, like, you know, grid pattern, like 12 panel pages, but they, they makes it work. But just because this is ostensibly a horror comic podcast, the last page of this issue. Whoa, I mean, I don't think I've ever seen JLGL171 ever do something like this. But it's, whew, like it is horrific. It, yeah, it, it's it's Dead Man by way of Walking Dead. It's like his his the corpse coming out of the ground. It's mind blowing. I mean, oh yeah, it's so good. <laughs> This, this is what Blackest Night was aspiring to. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I don't know that it necessarily got there, and I'm not going to argue that now, but this is what it wanted to be when it grew up. Oh, man. And that's all just one image. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, this this takes, like, the the true, like, horror. Like, I, I think of, like, the three iterations of Dead Man. You've got... You know, the the classic, like, you know, like Carmen Infantino or Neil Adams, you know, sort of superheroic one. You've got the, the Alex Ross Kingdom Come version, which is really just a skeleton. Um, yeah. And then somewhere in the middle is maybe, like, the Kelly Jones version. This is probably closer to the Kelly Jones version. I wonder if Kelly Jones was even inspired by something like this, or if his Deadman was just sort of playing more to his just natural style. This is the step right before Kelly Jones. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I like this issue. I dig it as a primer. I mean, even though it's, like, if you'd never known the, knew the character or you weren't familiar with him, we open up in a really weird place. It's like, okay, wait, who? This guy is alive, but he's in the secret city. Why is Batman here? He's fighting with his brother. There's, like, a lot going on to, to start in this pretty strange place for the story to start. But... By the middle of the story, we reset. He's back in the circus where he began. He's recapping his origin and his life story. He wants to go back and revisit his life. And he sort of, Helfer finds a way to make the story kind of reset and revisit his origin story. Um, yeah. But we, we up to and including his death and his, his returning as a ghost. So it's a very clever, structurally atypical story, but it's a, it's a nice little recap, reboot, soft reboot of who he is. So. And, and if it ends here, it's a horror story. Oh, yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah, definitely. Dead Man Issue 2, cover dated April 1986, on sale January 30th of that year. The story is called This Mortal Coil. Cleveland pulls Boston's spirit out of his zombie body back into limbo. 
the two of them make peace, and Cleveland, whose soul is pure, is allowed to pass on to the blissful afterlife, while Boston's spirit remains on this side to fight for Ramakrishna. Deadman comes back to our world in the immediate aftermath of his brother's death. He searches for and finds the killer, a woman he knew in Nanda Parbat named Lotus. He tries to possess her to take revenge, but she is able to resist his spirit. Maxwell Loomis, the circus dwarf, confronts Lotus like they have a past. Deadman tries to possess Loomis when it looks like Lotus is going to kill him, but the dwarf proves quicker and more acrobatic than Boston assumed. He gets the drop and shoots Lotus dead. Deadman goes to get answers from Vashnu, who is already having a secret conference with Loomis. Deadman takes possession of the dwarf, and Vashnu tells him the history of Ramakrishna. Rama saw violence and wickedness in the world and wanted to see more good for balance. She needed an agent on Earth and found a recently murdered man whose spirit cried out for vengeance. She made this man, who later in the series will be identified as Jonah, the same offer she made to Boston. Keep your spirit on Earth and fight for Ramakrishna to bring good to the world, essentially making this Jonah the first dead man. After many years, Jonah grew tired of the fight and wanted permission for his spirit to move on. Rama refused. The deal was he would serve her for eternity. Feeling betrayed, Jonah abandoned Rama and stuck out on his own mission. Eventually, he took control of a man known as the Sensei, leader of the Society of Assassins. Using the Sensei and his position, he trained warriors and built weapons technology in preparation for his one true goal the destruction of Ramakrishna and the city of Nanda Parbat. Once the city is gone, the people there will revert to their old wicked ways and become agents of the evil sensei. Deadman agrees to help Vashnu and Loomis fight for Ramakrishna just to get revenge on the sensei slash Jonah for killing Cleveland. Deadman, Vashnu, and Loomis go to Hong Kong. Deadman picks up the trail of the Society of Assassins. He finds their secret temple and goes into their lair. He sees soldiers working with weird-looking cannons. Then he finds the warrior assassins sparring with each other. Deadman takes control of one and incites a massive brawl amongst the assassins, leading to injuries and deaths amongst their ranks. From an unseen location, the sensei identifies that Boston is there. He reveals himself and Boston rushes to attack him but the Society's special cannons have viewfinders that can track his ghostly spirit. On the Sensei's command, they fire the strange energy weapons, and the blast hits Deadman, zapping his ghostly form as if it was corporeal. And that is where issue two ends. So, um, the cover for this one shows Deadman rushing straight towards the bridge, right toward the page, as you said. Um, Signature pose, too. There you go. Only this time we see him sort of in a viewfinder, and he's a little bit miscolored. There's an all-black background. Um, but Deadman is sort of colored a little bit weird because we're sort of seeing him through the viewfinder of one of these uh, strange energy weapons, and the target has him locked. Um, and there's a severe countdown going back. I don't know why they need to, all these numbers, but it says seven, six, five, four, three, two, one, fire. Um, what do you think of this one? Well, they're expensive weapons, so you need a full <laughs> 10 count on the countdown. Um, as for the cover, again, we got the pink and the blue. It's that, that sale that was going on that week on Pink Hank. <laughs> and to the last page, we get Dead Man, as you mentioned, when he's getting blasted, he's got a, a pink-blue shift going on, and it's the pastels rather than the bold crimson that he's normally wearing. 
which just it takes what you've said. You know, we're we're looking through a different spectrum or spectrum right, right. or a different lens. Right. Um, this issue is something else. And Jose Luis Garcia Lopez digs into his Atari Force past <laughs> to bring out some of the weapons and some of the costuming. I actually I had a a moment like that when we get to issue three. I was like, I think I had some of these vehicles as Cobra <laughs> toys when I was right. playing with GI Joe. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, it's definitely a, we get a, a weird blend of kind of like future like science technology in this uh, story about the the ghosts and spirits. But yeah, the cover, I like the image. Um, the coloring effect works in context. It, it does sort of I, I don't know. I, I'm not the 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 countdown is fine. Although I I kind of think if Dead Man is charging at you like that, you don't have seven seconds. No, <laughs> he's gonna get you much, much earlier than that. Um, this might be something an image that I like better in black and white. But either way, getting into this issue, um, gosh, there's so much. There, there's um, <laughs> oh god, uh, right on that first page, there's the um, the the who's who effect. What is it? Ah, uh, sh- why can I not? Serpent. Serpent. Yes, there's a serpent of Deadman screaming behind his own like little desiccated corpse. Yeah. Yeah, it's even using the Bende dots, too. Yeah, yeah. That is just one of the 165 panels that Jose Luis Garcia Lopez puts into this issue. Oh, he wasn't even trying that hard now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, certainly, pages two and three are not a double-page splash. It looks like we've got um, not quite 12 on each, but 12 on one and 11 on the other. So, yeah, we're getting a lot. Yeah. For it, it kind of feels like Cleveland is killed off in the story because he's just kind of an extraneous character. Like, I, I think Deadman has potentially a very interesting and very cool supporting cast with everybody at the circus. But I can kind of see somebody looking at it and say, "Okay, Cleveland is—he's a twin brother. He dresses the same. He looks the same. He's also got this circus background and everything." It's like. Do we need this guy, or is this just one dead man too many? Right. And and yet... He's a little too convenient. Right, right. I understand the desire from like an, an editorial and a creative standpoint to want to get rid of that type of extraneous character, but I don't think that Helfer was necessarily lazy about it. Even though he's killed off, I do think that Cleveland and Boston have a good send-off at the beginning of this. They have a nice moment. Um, it, it is used for dramatic purposes. It is used to expand and build upon Boston's character. The fact that he had to lose his brother like this because of his own arrogance and he has to reconcile that his brother can go on to heaven or whatever it is, but it's it's not his place to do that. He he still needs to atone and he still needs to fight. So, I like that. It, it gives Boston a reason to continue on or a, a purpose. You know, right. now, now he's got revenge right. on his mind. Right. And a an angry dead man is an interesting dead man. <laughs> I think I think when you get right. that, give him that motivation, that for for his type of character, because it does, yeah, he becomes kind of a loose cannon to a certain extent. I like the reveals that we get. Um, I always love seeing Vashnu, so I like any scene with him. So it's nice when he is able to kind of expand on the history of Ramakrishna and this whole mythology and who our big bad is going to be. I also really like the introduction of this character, Maxwell Loomis, the circus dwarf. Now, I vaguely remember him from The Secret Origin of Dead Man, because I haven't read that story since we talked about it oh so many years ago. But 
am I, I think this is his first appearance. I think he's created for this series, right? Yes. Okay. Yes. Uh, Andrew Helford created him with the express purpose of using him in the series and making him a, a detective character that had, pardon the pun, longer legs to, to run on later on. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I don't think Loomis ever really got that opportunity. And I'm trying to recall if he ever turns up again following this series beyond that Secret Origins issue. Um, or if, like, creators are want to do, they've discarded, you know, the babies in the bathwater. Right, so. right. Gosh, yeah, the, the first image of him, he's got, he has this dramatic reveal panel. It's the, the top corner end with his shortened stature and everything, but, like, he's got, like, the, these striped pant legs. It looked like like the trickster. Um, yeah, it, it looked like the yeah. trickster from yeah, the yeah. Flash villain. But he's got, like, this puffy green shirt, this clown mime makeup and everything, and this you know, 45 revolver that just looks huge in his hands, like comparatively, it's a cool, and, and it's, you know, you would not suspect, I mean, Boston certainly underestimates him. He's like, Oh, she's going to get the drop on him. I better take care. I better possess this guy so that I can save him. And before Boston can even leap into action, this guy's the guy taken care of. He does this barrel roll and gets the draw and like shoots her dead. That's like, who is this guy? But yeah, he's definitely an interesting character and I'm glad we get to meet him here. And then to your point, he shoots Lotus dead, but if the readers or the listeners out there go back to that Secret Origins issue that we covered on, on your Secret Origins, Origins podcast with Dead Man, drawn by Kevin McGuire, who also no artistic slouch. Right, right. Um, Lotus and Loomis share a past and a role in the hay in Nanda Parbat. Yeah, and you definitely, I mean, you can feel that looking at like the pages after she's dead. He's grieving over her. You know, this wasn't easy, you know, kill and everything. Yeah, he's grieving, but he, he did what he had to do. Right, right. And, and we see, we find out quickly after that, as much as Vashnu, uh, he is a loyal disciple of Ramakrishna, who Boston had no idea about that. It's like, dude, find out what's in your backyard first. But, yeah. So, you know, focusing on the arts... I don't know if we get as many like really splashy images in this one like we did in the first issue, but the detail and the attention that uh, that JLGL does, especially when we get into like the history of Ramakrishna, when we see these battle scenes like these ancient, you know, these battles on like elephants. When you have these like the oh gosh, like the, the detail, like the the bloodshed for these little wars and everything going on here across the yeah. Himalayas. It's it's incredible. The the bodies that he's packing in here and everything. And it's all contrasted with this great headshot of of Loomis with his eyes wide open now. It's actually Boston inside him as Vashnu is kind of like opening his mind and expanding it so that he can see this history and he can see this story unfold. Right. And the way uh, Lopez, Garcia Lopez does with um, with Vashnu, his face in particular, and Loomis, and Boston's, and the senseis later on. I mean, you just mentioned Kevin Maguire, who was like uh, one of probably the master at like facial expressions. But just in terms of like crafting, like there are some amazing artists that we know who have the same type of stock face and head shape for some of their characters. Yes. And I, I mean, looking at this, I mean, you would never think that. Jose Luis Garcia Lopez Praisby, his name is one of those people, just based on like the type of character that he gives to the faces of the characters in this book 
everybody is different. Everybody is unique. Everybody is signature. They have this recognizable profile. If you saw their silhouette, you would know who you're looking at. It's, right. It's oh, it's uncanny. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and even the two brothers. I mean, yeah. there's a definite difference between Cleveland and Boston. And yeah, through most of their conversation, Boston's wearing the dead man mask, but the the physiques are different. Their stat, their uh, stance is different. The way they carry themselves is different. It's truly two different people, mm-hmm. despite the fact that it could easily be mailed in and he could just be drawing Boston in two different angles. Right. The one panel for me that makes this entire issue is on page three. It's the bottom middle where Dead Man's just screaming forever as he's fading into black. Yeah. That's prototypical Dead Man. You know, it's that. <laughs> Woe is me. Here we go again. I didn't really want this, but I'm going to go ahead and do it. Dead man. Yeah. The the end of the chapter, the 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 big fight where dead man just you know he he goes to the headquarters of the, of the Society of Assassins and he sees guys training there. So he decides, you know what? I need to release some steam, and he <laughs> grabs one of the biggest dudes and just starts beating the hell out of everybody um there's one uh two panel shot where uh the guy that he possesses who we later learn is named dolph right um is getting kicked in the junk and dead man it, he's getting kicked so hard that dead man comes out of him <laughs> it, it's just phenomenal it, and without really overselling it Jose Luis Garcia Lopez gives us everything we need to know to just see how amazing this this whole skirmish can be. And during that fight, he just lets the backgrounds go away, and you're mm-hmm. just focused on the brutality of it all. Right. And there isn't unnecessary gore or bloodshed. It's just flat-out fistcuffs. Yep, yep. And then, like you said, the Atari 4 section comes out with yeah. like signature weapons, and he rushes for the sensei on the last page, the splash of him being blasted by all these energy cannons and being zapped. We get more, it looks almost like Kirby Crackle, a little bit of a different effect, but yeah, the magenta. (laughs) I'd like to get a pair of the old blue and and, uh, red 3D glasses and take a look at that and see what that looks like. Oh gosh, yeah, it looks like that was the type of thing. It looks like it was done with that in mind. Yeah. Because yeah, he's not even inked in black, he's inked in blue. Right. The shading is all blue. Yeah, oh, and it doesn't look like the magenta quite aligns, so there might be something there. Yeah, yeah, get the 3D glasses, there might be something. Yeah, <laughs> I, w- I wonder if they just had, like, they're like, we've got this extra magenta, we need to, like, what was right? a series that could lend itself <laughs> to this? Because, yeah, I think, I mean, they use that a lot in Night Force, the Night Force comics that I covered with Paul Hicks, like, especially in the, the first story arc, whenever they wanted to use the psychic energy that the main character was creating... That like her psychic. Whenever she released the, these psychic demons, they were always this weird magenta that wasn't always inked. It was this weird effect. They must have just they discovered how to use that that color, and they're like, "We got to do everything with this." Yeah, and I'm curious to to know if, if Ziuko or Zuiko, however it's pronounced, it is the same colors for Night Night Force. You know, and maybe that's just his own personal color palette that's carrying through good question. I'm going to look that up really quickly. I don't think he is. I don't recognize the name from all the times I had to read the Night Force credit. It was... <laughs> Come on, you miss it. I... 
I I loved that the first story arc that we covered like with me and Paul that was great I think the series ended not so good uh, no it looks like it was Adrian Roy was the colorist on that well or sometimes right. sometimes Michelle Wolfman looks like they may have alternated interesting uh, looks like Michelle Wolfman did the bulk of the coloring but Adrian Roy on some of the issues right but yeah that's the that is the first half of this Dead Man series which I had a lot of fun reading this. Um, I think we're going to have a lot of fun covering the next half. But listeners, you are going to have to wait until the next episode, which should not take that long to come out. But uh, yeah, until we get to then, uh, we're, this is going to be a little bit to be continued. But until uh, then, Doug, thank you very much for coming back to the show to be my guest on Midnight the Podcasting Hour. Ryan, thank you. <laughs> of course. Why don't you tell the listeners where else they can find you? Uh, well, be quite honest with you, I'm not a whole lot out there anymore. Um, Comicosity has kind of changed the way that they're doing things, so I'm not writing much for them. Uh, my Doom Patrol blog, which is migratorsadventure80.blogspot.com, is a little bit dormant right now, uh, just based on the fact that life's getting kind of busy. The Wi-Fi and Nanda Parbat sucked a little <laughs> bit, you know, um, so it... it, it I'm still out there. I'm still on Twitter uh, at DZavisha. And if you can figure out how to spell it, then you can find me and we'll talk. <laughs> um, but otherwise, you know, I'm just, I'm around. I'm like Dead Man. I'm there, but I'm not. <laughs> we can't see you, but you're always there. <laughs> exactly. I'm in your hearts. There you go. That sounds right. Well, we'll have to find more excuses to get you back on our shows here at the network because uh, we always love talking to you. Well, thank you. Likewise. All right, folks, uh, we're going to take a short promo break right now. To, but on the other side, you'll hear me again covering your listener feedback from last episode. Don't go away. In 2014, two comic fans joined forces to do a Doom Patrol podcast. As there was no Doom Patrol comic series at the time, they called it Waiting for Doom. That was us, me, Mike, and him, Paul. In 2016, DC Comics became fearful of the power of Waiting for Doom and sought to appease us by bringing the comic back. Uh, That's not exactly how it went. In 2018, terrified of the sheer horde-organising power of Waiting for Doom, DC Universe announced a Doom Patrol TV show. Uh, I think they were planning that without us. In 2019, they again brought back the Doom Patrol comic, hoping we would not smite them. Uh, This makes no sense. In 2021, they realised we were the most unstoppable force in existence and released the Doom Patrol movie. Uh, This is pure fantasy now. In 2022, a terrified Motion Picture Academy awarded the Doom Patrol movie every single Oscar, including Best Documentary and Foreign Language Film. Uh, That's enough, Paul. Look, we just love the Doom Patrol and have fun talking about them. You can find us on all podcast places and now Spotify. And check out our website, waitingfordoom.com, or we will wipe you out, all of you. Welcome back, listeners, and happy Halloween. Just to give you a peek behind the curtain, Doug and I recorded our coverage of this miniseries way back in July, with the expectation that this episode would drop in August, but the summer was a little crazy, and then it just became too serendipitous to make this a Halloween episode. 
Don't worry, though. You will not have to wait long for the next episode. Not long at all. And I'll tell you all about that after we get through your listener feedback. These are the website comments that came in for episode 23 back in February. On that episode, I covered the Perfect Host short story with Clinton Robison of Coffee and Comics blog. That was the story with the guy who has a spider lay eggs on his back and the baby spiders devour him when they hatch. That was pretty gross. Then Herman Lowe from the Long Box of Darkness helped me cover Swamp Thing issue 4, which had Swamp Thing fighting a werewolf. The first comment came from Chris Franklin from the House of Frankenstein and Superman Movie Minute shows right here on this very network. Chris said, The spider story was genuinely creepy. The idea of a cocoon full of baby spiders being attached to your back adds body horror onto arachnophobia. Ugh. I'm not overly scared of spiders, unlike Angela and Clinton, but that cover is pure nightmare fuel. Uh, Then Chris added his own praise for Bernie Wrightson's werewolf design. Just human enough to be chilling, Chris says. As much as I love an American werewolf in London, when you go full giant werewolf, you kind of lose me. Wrightson keeps just enough humanity in the design to remind you that this was once a man, and that's horrifying. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, there are lots of different ways that you can interpret what a werewolf looks like. I tend to prefer something closer to the the classic wolfman design or werewolf by night where it's got more of a human face. It doesn't have necessarily the really sharp protruding muzzle or jaw uh, that would give it like the sort of canine or, or or lupine features. However, I have seen versions of that that look really, really, really cool, um, really terrifying too. But generally, I like a somewhat more human design. But again, it depends on the artist, depends on the situation. Uh, Rob Kelly from this here Fire and Water Network, including MASHCast, TreasuryCast, etc., he said, The spider story seems way gorier than DC usually got in their horror comics. Maybe by using Bill Drought, they thought it toned it down some of the awfulness and therefore could get it past the Comics Code Authority. It reminds me of that one Gilligan's Island episode where they meet a giant spider in a cave. It terrified me as a kid, even though it was all so silly. And of course, these swamp things are as good as it gets. That full-page reveal of the werewolf feels like the kind of thing Wrightson probably saved until last, so he could uh, really sink his teeth into it. By the way, do we know who did the lettering on this book? It fits in so well with Wrightson's work that I don't think this series would be as effective without it. There's no credit on Mike's Amazing World. It would be a shame not to know. The balloons are so moody and literally dripping with atmosphere. Uh, I agree that the lettering in Swan Thing is awesome. Uh, It really fits the visual aesthetic. I did look it up on the Grand Comics database, which credits Gaspar Saladino as lettering rights in Swan Thing. And I have no reason to doubt that because Gaspar is a really, really prolific and really well-regarded letterer. Uh, Clinton Robison of the Coffee and Comics blog and podcast and my guest on the Perfect Host segment said, Herman's segment talking Swamp Thing was exceptionally enjoyable. I'd never considered that the early issues of Swamp Thing were a journey through the history of horror films. Maybe I need to read all of these again with a new perspective in mind. I highly enjoy rereading them, whatever perspective you are bringing them to. I just, they're fun to look at and fun to read. So, Liz Ann Oswald said the perfect host story with the spiders reminded her of the last fight between Dr. Robinson and the spider form of Dr. Smith in the Lost in Space movie. You know, 
I never thought of that until now, but yeah, with the spiders crawling all around him, I I definitely see that. That's a good catch. Uh, of the Swamp Thing issue, Lizanne said, I never got why werewolves went mad. It doesn't fit with how wolves act toward humans, but it fits the lore, I guess. Mostly started from starving dogs eating corpses, or so I have heard. The werewolf was pretty cool and does look a bit like Neil Gaiman, who was probably at most 12 or 15 when this was written, though it is fun to think of him inspiring the look of the werewolf, kind of like how Alan Moore was thought to be what Brainiac of the John Byrne Superman run was to look like, but one had nothing to do with the other. I can see why Jeanette Kahn started Vertigo with stuff like this, seeing how far they could take it and tell a good story. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I I read a book about wolves ah, 20 years ago, um, and just seeing how often like misunderstood they are, and how like the, really the lore of the werewolf does not fit the, the sort of like the culture and the the social norms of a wolf, kind of like the animal at all. But anyway, moving on. Ward Hill Terry, who I met just briefly this past summer at Fan Expo Boston, he said, I have read the Swamp Thing story a time or two, but not recently. It wasn't until I heard the name Macabre spoken aloud by Ryan that I twigged it sounds like Macabre. That's the M-A-C-A-B-R-E word. Uh, which is a great catch word that even I didn't get, and I was the one saying Macabre out loud. Uh, although it does sound like Martin Gray did. Speaking of Martin, he mentioned that the story Beat the Devil, which was part of P.J. Frightful's intro last time, uh, of that story, Martin said, that opener surprised me because I thought old Nick was going to point out that repentance doesn't work if it's just, quote, repentance. There has to be a genuine sorrow and a desire for forgiveness. This comic ain't Catholic enough. Nice. Uh, Martin went on to praise the Perfect Host story by Bell Drought. He then said, There is nothing much to add as regards the Swamp Thing story. It's a true treat, and it's great to hear some love from Herman for the Pasco Yates run. It's been horribly overshadowed by what came afterwards. That is very, very true, and I am going to cover more Swamp Thing issues. I wasn't sure how far I wanted to go. I definitely wanted to hit all of the Len Wein and Bernie Wrightson issues, and I would like to get to the Marty Pasco run that started Saga of the Swamp Thing, too, because I really like those issues. The thing is, the ten issues in between, issues roughly 14 through 24 of the original Swamp Thing run, there's some interesting ideas in there and one or two good stories, but there's a lot of blah, and some that are just bad. So maybe I'll skip those entirely. I'm not sure if I want to do that, because I did kind of like doing the indexing format, but I, I don't know. That, that might not be worth it. And who knows how long it'll take me to get there anyway. Uh, and finally, Siskoid from many podcasts here on the network, he said... Looking at the gallery post a few days after listening makes me realize 50% of the horror genre is just people with bad posture. Very <laughs> uh, good insight. Uh, nice observations. Let's go ahead. Uh, yeah, and that does it for listener feedback. So what is next for Midnight the Podcasting Hour? Well, you are in for a very special Halloween treat in that you only need to wait 24 hours for the next show. 
Midnight episode 25 will drop tomorrow, November 1st, All Saints Day. That one will conclude the coverage of the Dead Man miniseries with Doug Zavisha. We'll do issues 3 and 4. But that won't be all. Since the number 25 is considered a milestone in comics, I figured the 25th episode deserved a little more content. That is another appearance of the Spectre from the adventure comics run by Michael Fleischer and Jim Aparo with my special guest Rob Kelly. Again, that is all coming tomorrow for All Saints Day, but until then, have a very happy Halloween. Watch some scary movies, eat some candy. If you've got kids, have a safe and fun time trick-or-treating. Crap, there's the bell, and I forgot to mention the Patreon. Uh, Go to patreon.com slash fwpodcast to support the show. Your donations are greatly appreciated. Midnight, the podcasting hour is part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Feedback for this show can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com or the Facebook page for Midnight, the podcasting hour. You can find Ryan on Twitter at ryandaily01 or send him an email at rdailypodcast at gmail.com. You can also support Midnight the podcasting hour and the fire and water network on patreon special thanks to all of our generous supporters who keep this show alive for more information on how you can support the fire and water network visit patreon.com slash fw podcasts midnight the podcasting hour is not affiliated with dc comics and the views expressed belong solely to the speaker. Music for this podcast is produced by Neil Daly. Any additional music, audio clips, or quoted text is used for entertainment purposes, and no copyright infringement is intended. Thanks for listening, and have a good midnight.